Good evening and welcome. It's a delight to see so many people out here this evening. My name is Wills Rooney, and I'm an undergraduate senior and a student director of the Duke Catholic Center Lecture Series. And I'm very excited to welcome you to our presentation of God After Darwin, Our Christianity and Evolution Compatible. Tonight is especially extraordinary because it is the initiative, initiation of a collaborative effort between the Duke Catholic Center Lecture Series and the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C. For those of you who may be uh, newcomers, the Duke Catholic Center Lecture Series is a programming effort from the Duke Catholic Center, which is a Roman Catholic parish operating on Duke's campus and part of the Diocese of Raleigh. And the Thomistic Institute uh, at the Pontifical Academy of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., is an academic apostolate that specializes in the philosophical and theological work and tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas. And we also have, for those who have an affinity for the mendicant friars and their tradition, this is an, indeed an additionally special evening because we have a sort of meeting of the Franciscan tradition and tradition of St. Francis and the Dominican tradition and that of St. Dominic in that the conventional Franciscan friars who run the Duke Catholic Center trace their heritage back to 1209 with St. Francis and the Dominican friars with Father Thomas Joseph White and the Thomistic Institute trace their heritage back to 1216 with, uh, with St. Dominic. So this is really, and then the two orders have a really excellent intertwined history of collaboration apostolically, academically, um, in, in really a lot of respects. So it's, this, is, this is a great evening. And I'd also like to highlight our thanks to the Thomas International Center in Raleigh for their continued collaboration with the Duke Catholic Center Lecture Series throughout the last two years. Uh, they are providing the filming and, and, and videography. They, have, they helped and assisted in promoting the event, and they provided funding and other support um, throughout the last two years that have been really instrumental to our own growth uh, as a lecture series and as an academic apostolate on campus. Um, so without further ado, I'll get to our distinguished speecher, speaker, Father Thomas Joseph White. Father Thomas Joseph White entered the Order of Preachers, the Dominican Order, in 2003, and he actually converted to Christianity as an undergraduate at Brown University. His research and teaching have focused particularly on topics related to Thomistic metaphysics and Christology, as well as Roman Catholic Reformed ecumenical dialogue. He's the author of Wisdom in the Face of Modernity, a study in Thomistic natural theology, and The Incarnate Lord, a Thomistic study in Christology, as well as recently a theological commentary, a biblical commentary on the book of Exodus. Father White has edited several books and is co-editor of the theological journal Nova et Vetera. In 2011, he was appointed an ordinary member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Please uh, welcome our distinguished speaker, Father Thomas Joseph White. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm very grateful for your hospitality and for all the people who've come here to uh, investigate this difficult and interesting question. I should go ahead and uh, begin by prefacing in remarking that I have no special qualifications to comment on subjects of subtle biological science, physics, or chemistry. I have a rather pedestrian and um, I would hope somewhat nurtured amateur knowledge of the theory of evolution from reading people like Ernest Meyer and Stephen Gould and even Richard Dawkins and taking classes back in the day. My own formation and study are more in philosophy, metaphysics, uh, the Catholic theology of creation, 
and uh, topics in relation to the compatibility of science and faith and uh, philosophy and faith. So I'm going to try to give tonight a kind of brief postcard sketch. I hope in the next 45 minutes or 40 minutes and then leave time for questions and, and uh, engagement. A brief postcard sketch of an overview of the principles that govern a way of thinking about the, the fundamental compatibility of uh, modern scientific realism regarding evolution, the evidence of evolution uh, and our evolutionary ancestry and the principles of traditional Christian theology. I've given you a couple of resources here at the top of the page. If I do nothing other than alert you to these resources, I will have done a better job probably than what I might say in my talk. The first is a document of the International Theological Commission of the Roman Catholic Church from 2004 uh, on the human person, which has a, a section in particular on the modern scientific worldview from sections 62 to 70. And I've given you some of the paragraphs from that on the whole, uh, taking up the whole back page. I might read a little bit from it. The second thing I have here is a website recently created by four Dominican friars, one of whom has a doctorate uh, in molecular biology from MIT and another who has a doctorate in physics from Stanford and the, the other two have their doctorates in philosophy and theology and it's an attempt to show the fundamental compatibility of evolutionary theory and traditional Roman Catholicism uh, in segments that are very accessible and that also can be communicated easily to non-specialists. They have written some of these people much more ornate attempts to portray the, the, the subject matter but you have a a good concentrated initial subject there. And then William E. Carroll is a former professor of mine. He's a um, professor of the history of medieval philosophy and modern science at Oxford University. And he looks at the origins of, uh, of um, the doctrine of creation, its compatibility with modern scientific uh, thought. And he's got a lot of great articles online for free. I, I note here one of the best, but I think there are maybe 40 articles on the compatibility of science and religion that, that Bill Carroll has produced. Okay, so let me give you seven basic overview principles. These are not going to be in great uh, intricacy, but if you have questions and answers, you know, we can, in the question and answer period, if you have, want to penetrate more into them, let's, we can do that. So I want to start with a fundamental claim that I think um, I should make up front. It didn't occur to me that I should make it when I was first thinking about this talk, but it seems to me important just in terms of the, the kind of approach to Christianity I'm taking here. And that's the principle that I believe that the evidence of evolutionary theory's well-foundedness is, is strong, that evolutionary theory is reasonable. Now, to give a very brief <coughs> claim about what evolution is, it's the belief that between 3.8 and 4.1 billion years ago, uh, life arose on the earth in the form of single-celled organisms that eventually through reproductive processes and Select, natural selection and the alteration of genetic material complexified, and you got to get multi, you began to have multicelled organisms that eventually built up through what we might call a very broad, wide tree of life, different kinds of groupings of animals, of um, living things, um, uh, including, of course, many kinds of plants, animals, insects, um, that we can, through the evidence of um, archaeology, paleontology, and uh, genetics try to regroup the, the connections between the way these different species developed. And that we can see that our, we ourselves, uh, as Homo sapiens, descend from a kind of mature development of a, of a form we call the Homo sapiens in, in, uh, in modern scientific lingo, 
anywhere from 50,000 to 150,000 years ago, and some people would want to put that back further, like a million years ago, depending on what criteria you use for what you call a Homo sapiens. Um, why do I say it's reasonable? Well, our, con our complex knowledge of the, modern of the universe that we've developed in modernity since the scientific revolution is multifarious and takes its starting points from numerous different uh, evidences about the, the shape, size, and construction of the universe, its historical development. A lot of these ways of knowing the universe are independent of one another but deeply convergent. So, for example, Big Bang cosmology, which suggests the universe is approximately 14 billion years old, that the Earth's relation to the solar system and the larger universe condensed about 5 billion years ago, that there's evidence of the Earth's geological development over time, including the shifting of plate tectonics and the way we look at the development of continents, the way those things separated, and the way life forms developed based on those separations. The, paleonto the paleontology and the evidence of um, a wide diversity of living forms that are enmeshed in the archaeological record of the Earth. The evidence of millions of extinct species and the evidence of intermediate forms that are ancestors of contemporary species, obviously we would often think of those uh, ancestors of the modern human being that also may be, of which normally I think it's thought, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think the chimpanzee is also thought to be derivative of, and if you go back further enough, I think you can get Homo erectus out of another branch. Uh, modern cellular biology, which looks at a lot at you might call, I don't like the word, as you'll hear later, the mechanics of the development of the cell, the way cell reproduction occurs, the recombination of DNA. The correlations of genetic information and traits in living things. That's to say that there's correlations between what we see in the genetic makeup of a given thing and the traits that it exhibits, and this, how this relates to previous forms that we find and that DNA in those things. Evidence of mutations in things today, we can see, observe in labs, micro-mutations, and uh, try to trace out the, the distinction between things in past and the things in today according to these genetic correlations. And lastly, correlations of genetics to features of our sensation in neurobiology, the whole exploration of the neurobiological development of the complex mammal and how that's rooted in the frontal lobe and it's rooted in a genetic substructure that gives rise to that highly developed organism. Okay. The problem is if you start to tinker with the denial of evolution, you don't just have to deal with explaining one of these features of reality I've just lifted off, uh, just listed off, without somehow having an accountability to the others. But you have to deal with all the other elements as well. So you know you have people who believe in the special creation of life, uh, not derivative from the evolutionary forms, but they want to basically hold the universe is 14 billion years old. You have other people who want to say, well, no, I don't want to hold the universe is 14 billion years old. I want to go. I want to get. I'm going to take on Big Bang cosmology if I'm going to take on evolution. Uh, you have a lot of problems to solve if you don't go down the road of this massive amount of convergent evidence we have from geology to uh, modern physics to modern biology to modern genetics to modern neurobiology, which correlates. Right, so it seems to me it's a very reasonable hypothesis and maybe something more than a hypothesis to claim that there's good evidence of evolution. It's not direct, but it's, it's a congruent... Uh, convincing theory that explains a great deal. Second, the doctrine of creation in classical Catholic and Christian thought is not, is not concerned primarily with a portrait 
or even an account, a conceptual account, of the intra-historical development of the world. What do I mean by this? Well, take a simple, a simplistic, actually, example, and you say, well, to believe in creation is to believe the world was made in six 24-hour chronological days, as exhibited in the, in the beginning of the book of, of, of Genesis. And that is the doctrine of creation, to believe in that picture of the development of the six days of creation. Absolutely false if considered historically. That's to say, if you study Augustine or Aquinas or Bonaventure or Scotus or any of the great Catholic thinkers, that's not what they think. In fact, Augustine points out, I think, and this shows you I'm not also not up on the, uh, the days of the creation very well, um, but I think it's the fourth day that the sun is created. And Augustine comments on that, and he notes that even though the text was written hundreds of years before him, and he thinks the people who wrote it are somewhat rustic, he says they, uh, they had whatever, he's in the fourth century A.D., whatever the science was that they had, they could see the sun came up in one day and set in another. So when they talk about a day passing, they know that that's the time it takes the sun to rise and sunset. So if they put the sun being created on the fourth day, they don't intend the narrative literally. Because you can't literally have four days when the sun doesn't exist yet. And anyone at any time in the history of humanity who's had empirical evidence of reality knows that. So that just shows you that an archetypal father of the church does not take the narrative to be a literal portrait. He thinks it's a poetico-metaphysical vision of reality, as I'll come back to. What traditionally the doctrine does uh, entail is that God gives being to everything that exists. That everything that is, and that is in any way dependent upon other things, that's to say finite, limited, caused in any way by any other thing in its being, is ultimately dependent upon the very giver of being, who is God. Now if you hold that creation is fundamentally God giving being to things that are not God, that's say creatures, the inter-historical, the history, uh, the inter-historical inter development, and the, you might say, cosmological and evolutionary history of the cosmos does not pose a problem from the point of view of the, of the doctrine of creation. Because the universe can be 14 billion years old, it can go through some vast kind of development, there can be a gradual emergence of living forms, and from the dust of the earth of living forms, you can have the eventual emergence of the homo sapien, the human being. But in and through all of that history, vertically, you might say, not chronologically, God is sustaining everything in being that is, in and through the entire history. You might think about, if you think about history, this is a visual metaphor. If you think about history as a line, and here's the beginning, let's just for the sake of argument say the Big Bang is the beginning of the creation. I'm not really committed to that at all. There could be things before that, but that doesn't, from the point of view of Christian theology, that's not a necessary commitment. But just for the sake of argument, you begin at the Big Bang, and then you get way out to here, and then you get the emergence of life in the earth, and you get the gradual development of living forms. Okay, the, the point is the whole line is sustained in being all at once by the eternal God giving it existence. There's no point at the line where creation begins or ends. The whole line is being created. Everything it always is, is insofar as God gives it being. Okay, So we don't ever have the possibility of a deep rivalry between a scientific account of the history of the cosmos and the doctrine of creation. And to say that we could have is to have misunderstood either the scientific history of the creation or of the cosmos or what we mean by the doctrine of creation. And typically it's the latter. Typically we don't really know what the doctrine of creation is. Aquinas has a beautiful doctrine of it. It's very accessible. Actually, well, William Carroll has a book, Aquinas on Creation. If you read that book, it's a little book, you see in the, te the texts of Aquinas commented by him, and you see right away, there's no opposition. 
Thirdly, well, what about chance? I mean, doesn't the random mutation of all the living forms in and through the competition of species in their niches or their struggle to survive and the survival of the fittest mean that fundamentally living forms arose in their variegation and development because fundamentally there's chaos at the source of all things, which is the random mutation of things, and so complex forms arose because of random chance. And so the universe sort of spit us out through no purposeful meaning, but just because of the accidental configurations of matter that took place through time. This is actually also not really a scientific question. This is a philosophical question, and it really is an old one. There were people who claimed that we came about in the universe through chance configurations of matter a long time ago, and it began really with the pre-Socratic philosophers who articulated a very uh, sophisticated theory of the chance, random development of creatures through processes of material recomposition. And Aristotle takes these people on in the physics. I think I gave you the reference here. Book 2, chapters 4 through 6. It's a reading to read slowly and meditate on deeply uh, because it's brilliant. It's absolutely wonderful. When he talks there, when he talks there about the pre-Socratics thinking that all things arose in the world through the chance and random uh, recombinations of water. It's very interesting because it's the same doctrine you read in Dawkins, but not depicted in a modern cosmological framework, but in an outdated and, in fact, erroneous cosmological framework. And yet, the metaphysics is the same claim. It's fascinating. So, which suggests to you that Dawkins's claim about the primacy of random de determinations of matter as the sort of mechanism by which we arose might not really be based on the modern cosmology, but actually on a very traditional, let's say, old-fashioned, pre-Socratic philosophical commitment. Anyway, Aristotle points out that chance is not a proper cause, but an accidental cause. What does that mean? Well, to say it briefly, it means chance is never something primary in reality. Chance events happen, but they're always something secondary in reality. They're grafted on something more primary, which is ordered activity. So, to take a, he takes this example. I am going to the market. I'm in ancient Greece. I'm going to the market. Or today, maybe you're going to the food lion. And I have intentions that are clear. I have an ordered purpose. I'm going to buy milk for to put on the cereal tomorrow morning. And my old friend from high school I haven't seen in 20 years is also going to the food lion to buy a jug of milk to pour on his cereal tomorrow also. And that's an ordered, causal, determinant purpose. And we happen by accident to run into each other for the first time in 20 years. That's by chance. And it's, you could say, good fortune, as long as we were friends and we're happy to be reunited. It could be bad fortune. You know, There could be the bad fortune of the fact that... Um, Oh, I don't know. You lived you lived too near Chernobyl when the you know when the Chernobyl incident happened in Russia and you developed cancer as a result. Your ordered purpose wasn't to, you didn't you weren't aiming to live near a nuclear reactor that, that had uh, uh, overspill of nuclear material, but you had the bad luck or the bad fortune of being near it. So Aristotle points out that what happens in life is that there are all kinds of levels of ordered, meaningful, intelligible causality. That's what modern science aspires to study. The behavior patterns, for example, of genetic material that are predictable because there's common forms that they all um, follow, or chemical compounds follow set patterns, or um, we could say they're physical <laughs> particles that follow set patterns. But then they can en engage with one another where different tr lines of causality that are themselves ordered patterns of causality, proper causes, enact with, uh, engage with one another in accidental ways.
This is not a major discovery. You and I came to be because two people who each have a nature, a human nature, which we can understand a great deal about, and we say there's proper causalities in each of them, by chance met sometime at an elevator or at a nightclub or at a friend's house and got married and had us as their children. So it's like non, it's, a non, it's a pretty non-trivial uh, uh, event, but it's a, a normal facet of, rea- of, of life, is that what we consider chance events happen all the time that we consider potentially deeply significant, and they form the stuff of history. They can form the stuff of history from a very small you know, level of physical development uh, in the initial stages of the cosmos to the development of life forms to the way chance events unfold in human existence. Now... It might be that if you know enough about the finite world, you can eliminate, then chance becomes really primarily an epistemological problem. So like we roll the dice and we don't know by chance what the two dice will come up as. But if we knew enough about the science of physics and we really knew all there was to know intelligibly about the dice, maybe we could eliminate the incertitude and it wouldn't really be any more for us a question of chance. We'd be able to predict it. Uh, they're doing things like this by the, the, the coin toss. Uh, the football players study this actually. Now, they, they, you know, they, they want they, whatever the side is, is facing up is what they tend to call because it's much. It's apparently statistically more likely that it will come up in the. But anyway, the point is, um, we can make inroads into what eventually, what initially seemed like chance events, and it, and it sort of follows from modern science actually that the aspiration to have a kind of plenary intelligibility of the physical world that what seems like chance and random events you might get to where you actually understand. Now, that's a very contested question among philosophers and even among Thomists, I say disciples of Aquinas, as to how much the physical universe you could... See, I, I have to tell you, I kind of suspect, I know other people who study Aquinas who think very differently, including people, including somebody I was talking to who I lived down the hall from about this talk yesterday, who thinks that basic chance is an epistemological problem. But I wonder if when finite creatures because they, they always will have outcomes that they can't themselves determine by their own causal mechanisms in engagement with others, whether you're always going to have accidental causality, that's to say contingent chance events, as part of structure reality. But the point is, it's not that chance generates order. It's that order generates events uh, and the engagement between different ordered kinds of realities that happen by chance. But it's not a proper cause in the sense that you can say it's generative of being or generative of the deeper order of things. It could be that as different kinds of organisms engage with each other, more perfect organisms, or organisms having certain greater perfections of a given kind, emerge through the evolutionary process. And we can say that the chance engagements of the organisms with another contributed to that. But to get the game up and running, you already have to have living things that have ordered purposes. And I'm not claiming by saying there are ordered purposes that you have to pose that God exists. I'm just saying... There's already kind of intelligible order of purposefulness or um, an aspiration to life in these living things. That's the condition of possibility for there to be these chance encounters that give rise in turn to the development of other things. So chance is not a silver bullet with which to destroy the idea that there's ordered patterns and meaning in reality. But what about species? I mean, doesn't traditional Christianity at least teach that God made all the different species? Didn't Adam name all the animals, as the story goes? And so we need to have a portrait picture of God by special creation making each of the species if we want to retain some kind of realism about the essences of living things, right? Because if it's so, if it's fluid, 
if it's fluid and you go from single cell bacteria to this, this extremely complex tree of different life forms that developed through all kinds of niches, through all kinds of history and complex conditions, then isn't li aren't living things just kind of a blur in which you can't really identify any intelligible essence to any one of them, but there's just kind of this movement of DNA, this drift of un somewhat unintelligible, chaotic life. And the Christian claim that physical reality is intelligible seems to dissolve. Not necessarily. It's interesting that uh, scientists use the word species often in a very meaningful way, but a way very different than traditional Aristotelian philosophy or a philosopher like Aquinas. For the scientists, usually species is a somewhat pragmatic term to mean when do you have a certain kind of life form that can uh, uh, reproduce with its other like life form. So like a species, basically, uh, any given life form where reproduction can occur among, uh, um, well, male and female, typically, of the same kind. Um, or that if they do reproduce, they'll reproduce a, a, a sort of fairly stable uh, organism with a, a, an organism with somewhat stable features, just like the one uh, that gave rise to it. And so, when you have drift in the genetic material, you start to get new characteristics, and then you have a, a new kind of thing that can no longer reproduce with the old thing. You talk about the emergence of a new species, and that's intelligible. That makes sense. But uh, Aquinas, interestingly, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, wrote one of the greatest treatises of um, Western philosophy or metaphysics when he was 25 years old. And it's a little book called De Ente and Essentia on being and essence. And there he thinks about, he talks about what he thinks are the different ontological species of things or kinds of things in the world. And he basically posits that you can make, uh, he thinks, I, I mean, it seems to me Aquinas is saying that there's basically four divisions. There's non-living physical realities. The differences between them are relatively accidental. You can talk about the difference between a stone and a lake or a cloud and, a, and, and the sun. But these are all basically generically the same thing. They're, they're non-living physical things. And the differences between them are not so, not so um, speci specifying as to necessarily put them in a different, as a different kind of being. It's a pretty general category, non-living physical things. Above that, he puts plants because those are living things that can move themselves but don't have sensation and uh, memory and don't build up forms of animal knowledge. And then he puts animals, and then he puts human beings as rational animals. What distinguishes animals is they have sensate powers of cognition, so they have one of the five senses. The more sophisticated animals have all the five senses. What distinguishes the human being for him is it has reason and free will and is made in the image of God, and has, he thinks it has immaterial properties spiritual soul. I'm going to come back to that. But Aquinas basically says it's not clear there's any specific differences among the animals. So, I mean, what he's saying is that the difference between, for example, a single-cell bacteria or a mosquito, he doesn't know about single-cell bacteria, but that, that kind of little thing, and an elephant or a giraffe or a rhino or a, uh, uh, a chimpanzee, that these the properties are largely accidental Developments, let's say properties, development of properties of what is basically always the same kind of thing, a sensate organism that can move itself, feed itself, nourish itself, and reproduce in and through some forms of learning and knowledge about the world through sensations. It's pretty minimal. 
uh, kind of differentiation. So there are definitely Thomists who've written about the idea that, you know, and another thing about Aquinas is interesting. This is the 15th century. He thinks it's, he doesn't see why it wouldn't be possible to have what he calls eduction, what we'd say today, I think, something like emergence, of living things from non-living things. If you've got the right conditions of the, pow- the virtual powers of non-living things aligned to produce the first living things, he thinks there might be enough, he, he, he speculates that God may have left enough virtual power in non-living matter that if you had the right alignment of material things, you could get the emergence of living things out of non-living things. It's just interesting. It doesn't mean it's right. It's just, it's just interesting that, you know, just in terms of compatibility of evolution and classical Christianity, it's hard to find a more classical Catholic Christian thinker than Aquinas. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with the, the idea that you have gradated forms emerging from non-living things to living things and then all kinds of different animal life that would be different just according to the emergence of different properties over time in their different historical niches. He doesn't think about the world that way in terms of a historical development of animal forms, but uh, his metaphysics allows for it fairly painlessly. I'm not the only person in the world who thinks that. There's a lot of learned articles written about this by people who have studied Thomas Aquinas. So sometimes you find Catholics saying, I mean, I don't know if Protestants say this, but you find Catholics who say, I believe in microevolution, but ma- macroevolution. Let's say I think you could have kind of small developments, mi- minor developments among living forms of small properties, but not difference of development from species to species. But it's not clear to me that Aquinas thinks there's any real difference between micro, so-called microevolution and macroevolution. I think he thinks macroevolution among animals is microevolution because they're all just animals. So once you have living things and they develop, it's like micro. Uh, it's a question. I mean, there might be some of the other. I've read about micro theories of microevolution. I, I just wonder if Aquinas would accept the distinction. Okay, here's my fifth principle, and this is really the kind of core. I'm doing pretty well. I'm staying on track. Uh, this is kind of the core part of the talk. And this is the big claim. And the big claim is that in light of evolutionary the, the, the modern scientific understanding we have of the universe and the development of evolutionary theory, the big metaphysical questions about the universe don't go away. Now, there are all kinds of ways you can align or use the, the knowledge we have of modern cosmology and evolution to try to illustrate a modern materialist theory of reality or naturalism, as it's sometimes called by the analytic philosophers. But... I mean, there are a lot of smart people who are physicists and biologists who are theists, monotheists who are Catholic or Christian. So it's pretty hard to show that there's an absolutely necessary alignment between a given, uh, between being committed to the kind of articulation of, of the modern sciences that you find in the university and a naturalist metaphysics per se necessarily or a monotheistic metaphysics per se necessarily. I think the big philosophical questions remain open. That doesn't mean that they don't have to engage with the modern sciences. It just means the modern sciences enrich and maybe in some way repose to us anew uh, those traditional metaphysical questions. There are some that are um, raised by evolution itself. I mean, it's interesting. I think most naturalist, materialist evolutionists would be very annoyed by this thought. Uh, and I'm not saying it to annoy them. But I actually think that if you, if you believe that basically we are just the random aggregates, we are randomly developed aggregates of very small particles of matter and that fundamentally we're intelligible only insofar as small particles identified by physics 
have aggregated in the ways we document through chemistry and modern evolutionary biology, and that that is the, 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 the total significance, or that, that's basically how we came to be, and it happened all by chance. The problem with that is if I look and if, if I buy into all that and then I look at my life and I think there's any facet of deep ontological meaning in life, then I'm going to go back to the scientists and say, well, okay, so if it all happened in terms of internal causalities of the, of, the, of, the, of the government of the universe by chance, I now have a very strong reason to think it was all intelligently designed because my life seems meaningful and there's no internal purpose to the universe to explain why my life is meaningful. It just all happened by chance. And yet, I've got this story that has spit me out where I'm sort of thinking about the universe as meaningful or I fall in love or I think the world's beautiful or I'm doing something artistic or I think there's such a thing as injustice, injustice. And I can't explain all that just by the materialist reductionism that's been proposed to me. So I need to appeal to God to have organized the cosmos that way. Now, this is not the story I believe but I think by trying to, to actually, I think the strange way is by trying to go to the metaphysical reductionism of materialism, you exacerbate the problem of meaning in such a way that you actually ironically give arm to the intelligent designer that you want so badly, so desperately to defeat. I, I'm just positing that as a hypothesis, but I think it's very kind of ironic, and I think it's true. Um, there's another way to take these things, which is to say... Yes, things develop through time, through, let's just call it, it's a little bit inappropriate, but let's just call it the um, evolution of the cosmos, you know, the non-living things, the way they developed through a long series, sequence in history, and then the, the gradual emergence of living, living forms and their, their development through a long period of time, and gradual complexity. Okay. But also it's the case that in and through all that, the whole is already is always greater than the parts and that we can document through a lot of evolutionary science the ways in which living forms reproduce and transmit their DNA in and through pattern sequences and develop new mutations and new capacities, new properties, um, and new perfections in given ecological niches. But you still can't ever understand a material thing just by looking at its physical parts. You've got to look at way the, the way the whole coordinates. And there's something irreducibly unique about a plant as compared to a thing that's not alive. And there's something irreducibly distinct about a cat as distinct from a plant. And there's something irreducibly distinct about a human being as distinct from a cat. And so these holistic beings, even if they do emerge through a long history, have these kinds of... Um, holistic intelligibility that's not simply reducible to the material parts, even if knowledge of the material parts helps us understand something about the whole. Now, if you haven't ever heard what I'm talking about before, if you don't recognize any illusions there, I'm just promoting here an Aristotelian theory of hylomorphism. That's to say, form, matter, composite uh, intelligibility. That's to say, we're not just understood by our material parts, but the holistic form or nature that we have and its various capacities helps us understand the parts. So, for example, if you look at, uh, I mean, just like a human being extending its arm, right? And I'm doing this voluntarily. I'm doing this through using my sense powers. I'm doing this as an animal. But then if we look at all the little molecules and the atoms going on in there, I mean, we do need to understand that movement in part by looking at all the atoms. But we also need to understand the movement of all the atoms by seeing the intention of the holistic being, the person who's moving his arm around. 
because that's re, that's having, a, it's not all that the, the information is not just coming up from the small stuff up to the larger level, but the, what's happening on the larger level is also affecting the small stuff. And evolutionary biologists are more and more willing to entertain this idea, you know, like, how does herd instinct among a group of el elks who work together to survive the onslaught of the wolf help them reproduce their, um, their like kind because of the survival mechanisms of the whole group? And that, in turn, helps the DNA that, that in contributed to their herd instinct also helps preserve that, that DNA in preserving the young. I mean, there, there's ways in which the larger, the holistic uh, pattern can act back on the, the, the smaller pattern. I propose that because once you start to think about the world as having that kind of irreducible intelligibility, like a cat is not really just the same thing as a, a bundle of atoms stuck together in a random process, a ran, as in a random collection, or that a, a tree is different than a dead thing, uh, or a dead thing is different than a non-living thing, then you begin to ask, you can ask deeper metaphysical questions, and you don't have to just uh, reduce everything to... Um, a problematically reductive materialism that's really a kind of intellectual dodge or evasion of the deeper questions of meaning in life. You can have an atheist like Thomas Nagel. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's like one of the most prestigious philosophers in America. He teaches at NYU. He's got a book called Mind and Cosmos. He's a committed atheist. And he thinks that a kind of neo-Darwinian, he believes in evolution, but he thinks a certain kind of Darwinian reductionism just doesn't allow you to take reality seriously. You know, so if Nagel's, N-A-G-E-L, Nagel's a very interesting voice of, a, of an atheist who thinks that something like an Aristotelian vision of reality needs to be uh, recovered. Um, theistic problems are still, uh, we can still pose theistic questions in a, in a universe where Big Bang cosmology and evolution are affirmed. Uh, material beings are all subject to ontological interdependence. There's no material reality that is the sufficient explanation of its own being. I, right now, depend upon the oxygen in this room, and so do you, and we depend on being a certain distance from the sun, or else we would be very, very cold or very, very hot, and we would cease to be, and that depends upon a lot of other forces holding the universe in place. And uh, there's a, there's, and what we say of ourselves as biological creatures, we could say of all things in some respect insofar as they exist as physical things. There's a web of interdependency in material things. So Aquinas is going to argue from that, and it's a sophisticated argument that I'm just alluding to intuitively, not trying to demonstrate uh, you know, rigorously, um, that you can't just have, a, a, in a universe where there's a lot of interdependent material things, you need something immaterial that gives them being because the material things are never first. There's degrees of perfection in things. And you see, I mean, in a certain way, you see this through the vast web of evolu evol highly evolved animals, uh, well, different kinds of evolved forms. They, all, they acquire different perfections in their different niches, and they're not cause of each other's perfections. There's a diversity of perfections of the world that gives testimony to kind of beauty and order in the world. Uh, final causality exists. I don't know why people deny that. I, I think it's a premise because of biology. If you want to understand what somebody's brain is or, uh, or what somebody's gallbladder is, you study what it does. You study its functions. You look at its outcomes. There's predictable outcomes of chemicals. There's predictable outcomes of DNA sequences. There's predictable outcomes of physical particles. It's just what Aristotle calls teleology. It's not that mystical. It's just saying that forms act, given natures, act in view of uh, predictable properties and uh, actions. 
And final causality raises the question of the deep down intelligibility of things. There's a kind of intelligibility of the universe that's there before we study it. Sorry, postmodernism. Uh, there's a kind of objective structure to reality. And when you study it, you see that. And that raises the question of a, of a transcendent intelligence. And then there's just the big question of the very gratuity of the existence of the cosmos. The world exists. It didn't have to, or at least nothing in the universe is the cause of its own existence. And nothing in the universe gives us a supreme uh, art, um, uh, reason to understand why the cosmos itself exists. So there are lots of ways to ask the question of the existence of God in a world where we acknowledge uh, Big Bang cosmology and evolutionary theory. Okay, I'm, I'm closing in. The plane is approaching the runway. Do not despair. But what about human origins? Now, in the Catholic tradition, there are, there are Christian theologians who do not posit that the human being is distinct from the other animals because we have a spiritual soul. But the Catholic Church reads the scriptures to teach authoritatively that there is something distinct about the human being, that we have spiritual powers of intellect and will that are not reducible to the biological matter that is in us. Now, this claim is not only theological based on divine revelation and scripture, but also based on, according to the Catholic Church's approach, the sound principles of philosophy, that there are features of human existence that are not reducible to our sensate animal powers. That's a strong philosophical claim. I'm not going to try to defend it tonight. I will try to allude to it. For example, a fundamental argument in Thomas Aquinas is that the human intellect can grasp not only the sensate individual, but can grasp the essence of a given sensate individual and can abstract from it a universal form common to all. So, for example, all of you here, I can abstractly know, are human beings. And I cannot have ever met a lot of human beings. None of us will ever have met all human beings who have ever existed. But if, insofar as I understand what a human being is through my rational, abstractive concept, I have universal knowledge of what is the case for every human being. This is, by the way, the way we do taxonomies for sciences. We can know what's true of every kind of biological creature that has this DNA without meeting and encountering every uh, case of this. Now, that argument has to be made kind of carefully, and it's a longer argument I'm just alluding to. But the capacity for the universal in us shows the mind goes through the senses and attains to being and to essence and grasps reality at a deeper level than just the configurations of individual materiality. We don't just engage with individual material substances the way other animals do. We grasp essences and we can abstractly know the universal and universal causality. And that's what gives rise to art and modern science, which you don't find in the other animals. And also language, having not just the cry the cry of other animals, but the, the capacity to make universal significations. Uh, human free will is also related to this. We can deliberate about the good because we can know a, a spectrum of goods, including the universal good, the question of all that is good. And so we have the freedom to not be determined in our rational appetite by one good or another, but to deliberate about any vast number of goods and to be free in the contingent choices we make about the good. And ultimately we're open to the goodness that's God so we don't have to be determined by any created good. We can give up all created goods for God in the radicality of our freedom. Um, we can love God above all things. So the radicality of human freedom, spiritual cognition, radicality of human freedom, and a lot of things that flow from this, like 
uh, an awareness of the dignity of other human beings as free, intelligent agents. It's different the way you treat a human being, the way you treat a cat or a tree. We all know that, but the grounds for it metaphysically are fundamentally in the spiritual dignity of the human animal. The human animal is different. The human animal has a deeper dignity. And that gives rise to things like justice. You know, people say things like justice is you know, conventional. I heard the story of an undergraduate who wrote a brilliant paper for a professor arguing that justice was, a merely, was merely conventional and contrived through social mechanisms. The professor gave him an F. He came to the professor, and this is a true story, I think. The professor came to him and said, uh, he said to the professor, I, I can't believe you gave me an F on this. He said, he, he, I've worked very hard on this paper. He said, the paper was brilliant. You convinced me. There is no justice. You have an F. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's what we call performative contradiction. Right? The kid knows there's justice, and he knows it's unjust that he got an F. And the professor's trying to show him the performative contradiction because the professor's smart. So... Uh, but that's based on things like the structure of human freedom and intelligence and gradations of reality, of perfection that we grasp. So anyway, the point is, if, and I realize for a lot of people here it might be a hypothetical conjecture or even, even perceived as a serious error, but if, as the Catholic tradition teaches, it is philosophically and theologically warranted to say there are features of our experience that make us think that we have a spiritual soul, then the creation of the human being is distinct. Not because we didn't arise from more primitive forms. Let's call them primitive for the sake of argument. The Homo sapiens, mm, between a million and, and 50,000 years ago. But at some point, you have, to, you have a new principle that emerges, and that the Catholic Church teaches, again, mm-hmm. arguing philosophically, is by direct creation of God, that God creates immediately the spiritual soul of every human being in the embryonic body conceived by the parents. So you and I each have a spiritual soul created directly and immediately by God and not created through the mediation of our parents' generation. Our body was generated by our parents in the womb. Our soul is created immediately by God. Then the question becomes, when did human beings emerge? If you follow this line of thinking, which, by the way, I'll tell you is completely normal in Roman Catholic circles, theologians and philosophers and biologists work on this. It's an interdisciplinary question. The biologist is not going to be able to tell you when the, if, on the presupposition there is a spiritual soul, when it emerged. In fact, the biologist can't tell you whether it's a spiritual soul or not, because if it's spiritual, you can't measure it empirically using quantitative measurements. And science is always bound in some way by deductions based on quantifiable sensate material. Right? So a scientist could give you a philosophical argument for why he thinks there is or isn't a spiritual soul. He can give you a philosophical argument for materialism or naturalism. But under the strict methodologies of positivistic science, he can't measure the fact that there's not a soul in you. Or measure the fact that there is a soul in you. Because he's bound by the quantitative determinations of matter. And the question of the spiritual soul and its absence or presence is not really a quantifiable question. So the question of when it emerged historically is not really per se a biological question. So the question of how much we resemble this or that ancestor that we find genetically uh, through our imperfect but real knowledge of genetic ancestors is never going to resolve the question when the soul emerged. It contributes, but it doesn't resolve. What we can do, though, is also look at paleontology. So we can see when do you start to see artifacts of human culture that if you're a philosophically committed to the spiritual soul, you think have to have emerged from rational life. So, for example, when do we see evidences of conceptual art? When do we see evidences of language? Tool making is more complicated. There's a lot of primitive tool making that happened of a fairly sophisticated kind way back when. And the question is, at what point, you know, chimpanzees can manipulate in things as tools? 
it's a, it's a question to what extent tools necessarily denote complex rationality. But when you get sophisticated tools, when you get like constructed artifacts of a very great sophistication, it seems like obvious evidence that you've got rationality. When do you start to see religious behavior, the burying of the dead? Okay, so at least 50,000 years ago, you start to see in North Africa this kind of thing, clothes, jewelry, uh, uh, language, art. And so many people who are in this kind of interdisciplinary work who work from a religious premises think that you get the rational homo sapiens emerging 50,000 years ago. Some people want to push it back earlier than that. But it's also got to be said, our knowledge of... Uh, uh, the archaeological and paleontological data is limited. I mean, we can find certain real data, but we don't have a very... Um, co we certainly don't have comprehensive encyclopedic knowledge of what was happening 50,000 years ago. So there's epistemological modesty. And that being said, we still can make good conjectures about the fact that you had the first civilizations of uh, more sophisticated rational animals emerge in northern Africa at least 50,000 years ago if not somewhat earlier, and that you start to see civilizational traits of language, tool, complex tool-making, art, and religious behavior uh, at that time and thereafter. Okay. So coming back to Genesis and finishing there, I've already made clear that the, the, the narrative isn't necessarily to be taken literally, but that doesn't mean actually it doesn't teach us anything historically. Genesis is an incredibly profound, the first two chapters are incredibly profound. They teach us that God made the entire physical universe, that God isn't a body, that God is neither man nor woman, or male or female, but that God made us as embodied creatures. He breathed spiritual life into us after having raised us up from the dust of the earth, that God has uh, not created us for evil but for good, that there's no evil in God. There were a lot of people historically who believed that there was a principle of evil in the divinity because there's so much evil in the world that you had to have primal evil in God himself. There's no evil in God. That human beings are endowed with reason and free will and that we have a superiority vis-a-vis -vis the other animals in the universe but that we also have responsibilities towards the other creatures and animals and the environment around us. And that once we were constituted with moral responsibility, we misused it, and that we uh, misused it in such a way that we uh, shattered a certain primal covenant with God by grace. Um, that's a vision. You know, I, I tend to think of it as a kind of metaphysical, theological, metaphysical vision of reality that Catholic Christians claim is inspired by God and is true. It's taught in a very symbolic way, but it's also taught in a way that makes these deep metaphysical ideas accessible to everyone from children to the greatest of philosophers. Everyone from children to the greatest of philosophers can spend their life commenting on and thinking about Genesis. And it's always an enrich, a rationally enriching document. And to take it seriously as revelation is to take seriously that we did in some way historically come to be by God's design, risen up from the dusty earth, created with spiritual souls, and that we were there was a, a time at which human beings came to be. It's not a picture portrait of how we came to be. It's not a picture portrait of when we came to be. But it's compatible with saying what Genesis teaches is divinely inspired and has some historical consequences given its metaphysics and to say everything else I've been saying about evolution and the origins of the human species. And so Genesis is not an obstacle to modern scientific realism if read rightly in the Catholic tradition. I'll finish there, and I'll open the floor to questions. Thank you.
Yes, ma'am. There's no silly question. Yeah. The dog going to heaven. Yeah. yeah. So I try to explain that to them. So you're asking two questions. One is a question about um, what we call in theology eschatology or the last things. What will the last, what will the end of the world look like? Okay. And another question is a pastoral question, like how do you deal with animals when they have affection for their pets and they watch their pets die? Okay. And I'm not going to really weigh in on the second thing. I would say on the first, I'd say on the first, on the first question though, uh, with regards to the final state of the human race, uh, all Catholic thinking takes its impetus from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the, the belief in the physical resurrection of Christ. There's a great evolutionary scientist called Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit and he discovered Peking man, who was a, one of the older anthropological discovery, very ancient, uh, hominid in the 50s. And he wrote a book called The Omega Point, in which he claimed that all things came forth from God's design, but that you really understand the whole design of evolution and development from the resurrection of Christ. Christ is the omega point where God recreates, like the second Big Bang happens in the physical resurrection of Christ. It's a very interesting idea. The recreation, it's like Paul, you know, the second Adam, which Paul also calls the last or the eschaton, the eschatological Adam, the last Adam is the new creation. And then I think, you know, with regards to the life of the, the physical universe, the Catholic theology is very open. There are people, I mean, must, one has to believe that the physical body is redeemed in some way in the eschaton, and in some way the physical world. Living, other living forms traditionally are thought to be here primarily for the good of the human race and the glory of God. We're not allowed to just trash the cosmos, as Pope Francis has noted in Laudato Si, uh, because we are really, it, it gives gl- or glory and honor to the Creator, and it's here for successive generations of human beings, and it has its own intrinsic dignity. But whether what what living things might look like in a redeemed cosmos is a, a speculation. There are people who think that animals are part of that, and there are people who think that that's not really necessary, uh, and so it's not clear that there would be. But there's a lot of freedom to speculate. Yes, sir. Um, I'd just like to add one uh, additional book to your list here, which yeah. is written, written by the Vatican astronomers. Yeah. Are you familiar with this book? It's, it's written by a Catholic priest and a monk. And it, the the title of the book is Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? Yeah. And the first chapter in the book is Genesis versus the Big Bang. Right. I'm a Lutheran, and our, our church, we're actually using that as a document now to talk about faith and religion. <clears throat> And it's it's very congruent with many many things you say here. Yeah. But they are very articulate. They are scientists at the hardcore level. Mm-hmm. They uh, they know about the Big Bang and all the evolution associated with that. But it's a very uh, very articulate uh, discussion adding on to what you had. Yes, thank you. I mean, I should add that this document of the intellect of the International Theological Commission was prepared in part with, in collegiality with, I think, the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences. And um, there were uh, science scientists who ghost wrote, as you call it. I mean, there were Catholic priest scientists of very high echelon level. 
ghostwriting a lot of the scientific part of the documents. So, I mean, it's nice to see that the Catholic Church does try to use um, the best resources of modern science in the service of this conversation between science and faith. Uh, yes, ma'am, I saw your hand. Uh, you seem to correlate in the uh, evolution of, from animals to people when uh, animals became people a certain level of rationality developed. Mm-hmm. And you seem to correlate that with the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else that would correlate with having a soul? Maybe a certain level of emotional development. Okay, you know, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, so Descartes and Thomas Aquinas have very different views about this question. Uh, and there's different views among Catholics, uh, among Christians. I'm, um, I'm ill at ease with some things Descartes thinks. So Descartes thinks, for example, even sensations, the internal experience of sensation is not reducible necessarily to the mechanics of the body, but is, is somehow lodged in the individuality of the soul. The spiritual soul is responsible in some way for emotions and for um, sensations. And this is why you get some people who, also, of course, Descartes thinks that the soul is a different substance than the body. So I'm really kind of two things. Aquinas, by contrast, thinks that the soul is the form of the animal body. So we're one being. I'm one, like my body is me and my soul is me and I'm one being, a, a soul a body informed by a spiritual soul. And Aquinas thinks that the emotional life in us and the uh, sensate life in us is fundamentally the animal life in us. But because of the spiritual powers of the spiritual soul, let's say intellect and will, the animal emotions in us are elevated to become rational emotions. So, for example, in arts, the arts, yeah. I mean, you need rationality to write a symphony, you know, think about a Mozart symphony, and you're listening to it, and just say for the sake of argument, you like Mozart, and you get emotional when you listen to it, that your emotions are being, are spiritualized there, because you're perceiving an order that's, it's distinctively human to create uh, the ordered beauty of artistic sound in that way. And so your emotional life here is an animal life of animal rationality, spiritualized in it, and, but still, death will lead to the for Aquinas is going to lead to the um, the destruction of the animal sensate powers in a way that I don't think it does for Descartes. Uh, so, I mean, in, for Aquinas, animality, uh, rationality goes very much into the roots of our being. So it's not just like thinking, but it affects everything, like movement. I mean, Aquinas is thinks because the soul is the form of the body. That, like when I move my fingers like this, a strange movement of my fingers. Like my rationality is moving my fingers voluntarily, and so like my soul, my spiritual soul is active at the tips of my fingers, literally at the tips of my fingers, um, because of the integration. He also thinks that whenever we think intellectually using immaterial concepts, we have associative phantasms with it. So if you put us under an MRI and you took pictures of our brain while we're thinking. You know, I can be thinking about God, I'm thinking about, you know, religious dogma, and you're going to see phantasms in my brain. It's not a big deal, because any time I'm thinking conceptually, there's going to be corollary uh, images. It doesn't mean that the thinking is reducible to the brain activity. It just means that any time I think immaterially, I'm also using the materiality of my brain. So the correlations between neuroscience and intellectual behavior are not going to be a problem for a Thomist. Because you'd expect that, given what Aquinas thinks about sensate, the sensate animal in us is engaged in every act of thinking.
even if there are immaterial features. I saw someone else's hand. Yes, and I'll come to you, sir, after that. So how do you deal with things if you think that um, this all comes from engaging in cultural traditions, like burying the dead, that there was a um, ape species, Homo maladine, found in Rising Star South African cave that used to bury their dead but have very small brains and didn't have the type of rationality, but seemed to engage in this kind of cultural religious practice? Well, I mean... You get into all kinds of interesting questions there. Like, so first of all, I'm not competent to, to, to comment on the specific example. I have a biologist friend uh, who's a Dominican priest um, who helped write some of this stuff, and he thinks that you can find highly spiritual behavior patterns in Neanderthals, which apparently we're not descended from. Okay, So he thinks that there's a, a special theological problem of the Neanderthal soul. That's an interesting pos- question. Um, Part of the issue depends also on what you think, you know, uh, what, what is our evidence of, I mean, burying the dead by, I mean, collective activity on the part of animals is common enough. So part of it depends on really getting, I'd have to look at what is, is involved there. I mean, it could be that you could start to see, here's the thing philosophically, is if we really, like, so in a parrot, if you teach the African gray parrot to, to repeat language to you, I am going to want to argue that I know enough about. I'm going to want to argue that's not language use. Okay, I'm going to say that's an equivocation to claim that that's language use the way we make language use. So one of the things I, I would want to do is see if the bearing of the dead here is equivocally like you know kind of like the gray parrot speaking. But another thing I'd want to um, look at is uh, whether you know I'm I have overcommitted to the bearing of the dead as a specifically rational activity. But if I start to see strongly what I consider strongly rational features, then, of course, we're in a philosophical question. Do I want to claim that the specifically rational features of the hominid are simply functions of a highly evolved frontal lobe and therefore go down the road of naturalism and materialism? Or do I want to claim that there could be features of spiritual rationality that are not really reducible to matter present in non-homo sapiens? Okay, so that's the problem we're going to have. But I think to, go to, even to get to the level of having that conversation philosophically, We'd need, I'd need to look at the data, but, you know, in more depth. Yes, sir. Just a, a question related to this lady's question. You talked about Aquinas looking at rationality like movement of the fingers would be considered rationality. Well, I mean, how, you just did it as an example. Right. How would he, how would he look upon withdrawal from a painful uh, stimulus like a, a fire? Uh, instinct. Sensate instinct. So I don't think he thinks that that's per se rational. In fact, he says those are not acts... He says those are not human, specifically human acts, but acts of a human being reacting by animal impulse. And he thinks they're there in part to teach us, you know, to avoid pain. Um, now he thinks you can shape and you can shape the instincts. Like for example, the instinct of thirst. Uh, I, if I'm jogging, I'm jogging six miles, and I could, I could, I can discipline my instinct of thirst to not, you know, just stop every time I pass the 7-Eleven and buy a big gulp. But um, but the, the, some of he also thinks they're spiritual instincts, like the instinct for the truth, which he doesn't think is reducible to the sensate biological animal in us. He thinks that's distinctly spiritual and characteristic of a human being per se. But we have in us some instincts, like the instinct to flee pain, which is part of um, the animal, what he calls the estimative sense of the animal. You can see animals learning from experience of pain and the sensate memory of the animal that can learn over time to avoid pain. Uh, I guess. Yeah, two, two more questions. The first, the follow up to Rebecca's question about that near all or the thing in South Africa. So, the, the Catholic theological claim is that 
understand correctly that even if, say, there may be some sim spiritually similar properties in Neanderthals rather than primitive um, uh, there's still a clear distinction in the ontological essence of the Homo sapiens sapiens, the modern man. Yeah, but not based on the... Yes, but I see what you're saying. Well, because on the spiritual soul, when you start to have what's called in classical Catholic theology, hominization, when you start to have the spiritual soul being created and then distinctly human, distinctively human. Now, there's no way that biological anthropology is going to be able to... When they talk about the emergence of the Homo sapien or Homo homo sapien, they're looking at biological traits. Those can still continue to drift and evolve after or, you know... So that's not really; those are not markers for when you get this distinctively rational human being, as I'm talking about, because again, the principle is immaterial. Part of the problem is also as you get le- um, more and more highly evolved forms that are now extinct and we don't have empirical access to, they could probably do some things that might still be, at least according to my ontology, distinctively animal and not human, but very sophisticated compared to any developed primates today. You know, so, like, I don't know whether Homo erectus had uh, rational souls. I doubt it. It's partly because we exterminate. It seems like some mean human beings exterminated them pretty quickly after after we got to more sophisticated tool making. But, um, uh, but they may have had very sophisticated uh, tool making properties, even as sub-rational beings. But we don't have, so we, there, we don't have direct access to that. But we might gain more insight into it through study of the, of the. And a quick follow up would be that now it seems to be very relevant in ethical circumstances where you have human beings who have formed a rational soul, human, maybe intellectually challenged or deformed or disabled in some way that might actually lead them to have less um, physical capacities that say very advanced Neanderthal might have had. Uh huh. Yes, I meet people all the time who say to me, yes, if the human being is deeply mentally deformed uh, and incapable of, of moral agency, don't you think it could be potentially the case that we could uh, dispense with that human being? And I say, yes, I think all males under age of 35. Uh, <laughs> definitely. Yes, I do enough pastoral ministry with young men in Washington to know that there's, there's, they're in great danger. Peter Singer is eventually going to argue that they should all be killed. And I'm going to have a hard time arguing against him just on the empirical data alone. Yeah, no, I think we have to have a very inclusive ethics of uh, universal human dignity. Yes, Father. Father, why is the 12th when we opened up the discussion of the evolution of the generous? Yeah. So basically we have to be very cautious when we're approaching evolution, and then he's explicitly mentioned seeing both sides of the debate. Yeah. It seems in popular writing today, uh, both sides of the debate are not really given. There's as, as many apologetic writers from an empirical background speaking against the veracity of evolution as a reasonable theory, including Steve J. Gould, who mentioned your talk, said 1980 that it was that the Evolution was basically defunct based, based on the Cambrian explosion and many other facts. Why do you think it is that both sides of the debate are not really given? Well, I mean, I don't think that's actually true. I mean, I think that there's a lot of uh, literature produced by the intelligent design community and by people who uh, are very committed to the idea that evolution is not a, uh, a well-founded, uh, epistemologically well-founded theory. I mean, I'm. I meet people not irregularly who hold it, so I think it is well. I think it is well uh, publicized. I don't think it has any traction in the scientific community, 
my own view about that is not because the scientists are being hard-nosed or um, ideological, although scientists often who are atheists are ideological, but I don't think about resisting evidence of evolution, uh, that evolution is false. I think that the scientific, my own conviction of scientific evidence is strong in favor of it. So I just simply am not taking on the question of here of intelligent design versus evolution. That's not the subject of my talk. I think if you were doing that, you'd have to line up you know, the arguments from both sides and you have to look at them and compare them. In my own experience of studying that stuff, I just am pretty convicted that the, the, the evidence of evolution seems to be reasonable. Um, but I think that that's a laudable discussion to have, and I think people who think that there are strong arguments uh, against evolution and, and, uh, not, and, um, intel and are strong advocates of some kind of intelligent design theory uh, have every good reason to engage in a, in a concerted dialogue with evolutionists. But my, the subject of the talk tonight is, is evolution in principle, if on the premise that there's good evidence for it and it's true, which is my own personal conviction, is it compatible with Catholic theology? So, I mean, it's a different subject, although I'm not disagreeing that there should be a conversation between people who are deeply convicted about intelligent design and people who are convicted about evolution. Yeah, thank you on that. Um, what do you think um, someone from the Divinity School and so we're thinking about um, this in the pastoral sense, what do you think uh, might be at risk for Christians who are unwilling to accept um, a sort of theistic evolution, um, for um, particularly in the, in the realm of soteriology? Um, well, it sounds like you, it's a front-loaded question of an interesting kind. It sounds like you've got an answer to it. What is at risk in soteriology? Well, I, immediately, I, I do think Gnosticism has spread a lot in America, and it's really uh, related to the idea that kind of an escapist theology, and, um, and I do think that there's something deeply connected to the idea that um, God, in that he has made a, I love the term, <laughs> the second new bang. <laughs> some people, the second big bang. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, that somehow um, God actually cares about you know, the plants, he cares about our relationship with the land. Uh -huh. And uh, I do think there's a, um, there's a connection, and um, I don't mean to pull, um, hurt anybody by saying this, but I do think there's a connection in a soteriology that doesn't encompass uh, um, a view of God's salvation being in some way evolutionary. Um, well, we'd have to look at the details. I mean, I, I think, I do think that, uh, I mean, I do think there's, there are dangers on the other side of the pond, uh, the other side of the pool, because, you know, you had a, a lot of, you had a lot of evolutionary ontology in the early 20th century that wasn't just about the question of life forms, but also about the question of, uh, I mean, the 19th century, you had all kinds of atheist forms of social evolution that gave rise to a lot of bad ideas in the early 20th century about, you know, superior races. But you also had ways in which there was a kind of a, uh, it, it aligns today with certain forms of postmodernism um, via Hegel, with the idea that there's really, the human nature is always in flux, the human social conditions are always in flux, and there are no stable truths through time. Uh, now, you're not alluding to that. But I do think that um, metaphysics needs to look at stable properties of reality that are always and, always and everywhere true, as well as the the aspects of reality that, that, that alter or change through time. Christianity is a religion that's not afraid of history, as you're alluding to, and embodiedness. But it's also a religion that does believe there are overarching universal truths. And the way you hold those two things together is rather delicate always, you know, in Christian theology. Is it Chris? Is it Chris? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to ask you about, um, you're speaking about the harmonization of like the point uh, spiritual soul came being 
I knew someone would ask me, yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I believe in histo- I mean, I think the Catholic Church is committed to a historical origination, uh, historical state of original justice and original sin. Um, oh, it's a huge topic. I mean, I how to say it briefly. Um, Aquinas asks the question: Is death natural? It's very interesting. The Summa Theologiae, Thomas Aquinas asks: Is death natural? He says, in, in he says, distinguish. Two senses. In one sense, it's natural that we die because physical beings undergo corruption, including physical animals, and we are physical animals. So it's natural that the body should die. If left to its own resources over time, eventually we'd be subject to death. It's natural to die because we're animals. He says, in another case, in another respect, though, in us, we're spiritual animals. The spiritual soul is the form of the animal body. And so it's unnatural because our spirit is supposed to be embodied. Our soul is supposed to be embodied. It's unnatural for the sundering of the spiritual soul and the animal body. He's like, okay, Aquinas, so what was God thinking when he created us? Now, Aquinas thinks, without understanding the resurrection of Christ and the mystery of original sin, it's really hard to make sense then of what a human animal is. Because why would, if, if we were created with a physical body subject to corruption and a spiritual soul, was God playing around that he would then leave us over to death? And what he says is that, that when we were created, the first original couple, the first human community, was given, was, it was placed in a covenant of grace with God where the invitation to live without death or with preservation from death was a grace or an offer made in grace that the human community could accept or reject based on its commitment to the mystery of original justice or the mystery of grace. Having forfeited that grace, it's natural that we die. But the drama is then the soul is now subject to being created in a body of death, to quote Paul. The body's good, but the body is perishable, and the soul has to deal with the existential drama of death which is a massive trial for each of us. Um, and the resurrection is the resolution of this, the, the, the hope in the resurrection of Christ. Now, uh, there's a famous question about whether the uh, original justice was uh, in, instantiated in an original couple or if, if it's in an original community. Uh, could there have been multiple communities? The church has clearly ruled out the idea that you could have I think the church has ruled out. Well, there's a dispute about it, I suppose. But I think the church has definitely ruled out the idea that you could have multiple originations of different human communities that all were creating grace and all fell. So, I mean, there's one source. Then there are some theologians who think today, you know, in this interdisciplinary approach, that you, you might need to get a certain uh, amount of genetic material. So maybe it was an original community of a certain number of hominids. Personally, I think mo- so-called monogenesis is entirely defensible. Monogenesis, the idea that we actually, the original couple is, a, is our two people. I mean, we have to be sensitive to the genetic and, and, and biological questions. There are different ways to handle it. I recommend strongly an article by Kenneth Kemp, K-E-M-P, and I don't have the title on me. You have my email on the handout. If you want to email me, I will send it to you because I keep an electronic copy. And Kemp looks at all the philosophical and scientific side of the issue, the genetic side, and defends monogenesis. On the ThomisticEvolution.org website, Nicanor Ostriaco posits a, a way of thinking about an, an original community. I don't think right now the Catholic Church considers that a doctrinal, uh, a doc, there to be a doctrinally obligatory position on those things. But I have my own reasons, philosophically and theologically, to prefer monogenesis, which I think you can hold without any negligence towards modern scientific data. In the back there, yes, sir. 
Yeah. Um, well, first of all, sir, thank you very much for coming and speaking tonight, and also for providing all the resources. I've actually already gone onto your website and taken a look at a lot of the articles you have, and found them very, very informative and educational. Um, I wanted to ask you about the question of death. Yep. Um, so I saw this article on your on your site, um, which includes a lot of. That's not my site, by the way. It's other Dominicans, okay. but anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, I, in other words, I can't take responsibility for every word they said. Okay. Or something. <laughs> yeah. They're friends of mine. But okay. Yeah. Very good. Uh, yeah, just the same. Well, I saw a lot of because the, the problem of death is how did death come to Yeah. Uh, and and so what I've heard so far that you the way you answer that is that uh, death sort of became was a natural state of the animals, and then that yeah. was transferred into yeah. uh, to the um, and so I saw a lot of you know, justification from uh, Aquinas literature and different church fathers mm-hmm. that consistently. Um, but I didn't see how you know justification of how that fits with uh, with the scriptural understanding of how death comes into the world, especially uh, of you know more Pauline doctrine yes. of sin, fall, uh, salvation, and gospel. Yeah, well, I mean, I believe all that. I believe all that. I mean, Aquinas thinks that the animals would have died even if, if man had never sinned, but that man would not have died. Okay, I think that's completely defensible in terms of Pauline theology. I don't think Paul's committed the fact that animals wouldn't have died. I mean, do, do you have a scriptural warrant for that in well, Paul? Well, I, 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 would, I would like to think that I do. I don't, I don't know. You can tell me. But Well, I mean, okay, sure. I just don't see in Romans 5 how you have to say that animals... The animal death is a result of human sin. Okay, well, well, first of all, in Romans 5, we have, uh, it says in verse 22, or no, uh, 12, uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and then, you know, and so death spread to all men, because all, all sin. Yeah. So there you can say, only, but you can say it only came to, to it, it came to man, and then through all men, through all sin except for the fact that it says that death came through sin. Um, and then also in Romans 8, yeah. it says that creation was subjected to futility. Because of the yeah, I mean, I, that, the question of how to interpret, I believe this creation was subjected to futility, but how to interpret that is a hard question. You know, I mean, that doesn't necessarily require me to posit that animal deaths are a result of sin. Okay, well, then, then I'll also ask this. Um, but I, and the thing I just said about monogenesis and original sin, I was defending exactly that view as I take it. When I say there's two senses in which death's unnatural, I'm saying in one respect to be an animal is to have a body sub, that's naturally subject to death, and that the preservation from death in the Adamic state is a gift and a grace. I'm not saying that it wasn't there. I'm just saying it's a grace. It's not a principle of nature. But that when he fell into death through sin, then he reverts to the natural principle of having lost grace, which is my way of reading Romans 5. And I think it's totally coherent with Paul. Okay, but is, is all of animal death, would that be considered very good then? Well, okay. I mean, the thing is that if evolution's true, and there's like today maybe, I don't know what, 10 million species in the world, but there's back through historical times hundreds of millions of species, they couldn't have all coexisted in the world. And so animals have their own dignity. And I mean, Aquinas thinks that there is a goodness to the finite life of the animal that's non-rational. And that, you know, because you had the evolutionary process, you've had a, a, a massive production of the goodness of animal life through time. So, I mean, it, how far do you want to go? You, you think bacteria exist? Do you think bacteria exist? 
Do you think that their death is, is do you think the evil of bacteria death is a, is a problem for the goodness of God? The Bible considers it a problem because the Bible understands death is in uh, lifeblood. So, for example, animal death okay. and human death, which uses that. Okay. All right. You have your own theology. So now we have to go into the question of like, where are we get our theological principles? So I, I, I think, I, I mean, you've made your point, and I'm not, I'm not trying to shut you down. I think you're making a very important point that I agree with about biblical uh, um, accountability. I take that just as seriously as you do, but I read it in a different tradition. So then we'd have to get into an ecumenical discussion about like the place of blood and animals and like. You know, questions of exegesis, principles of exegesis. And then we'd have to talk about John Henry Newman. And so that's a different discussion, right? You know, John Henry Newman on the development of doctrine. That's the discussion we have to have. So it's not that I don't think it's irrelevant. I just think that, you know, if we get into like the whole like, the architectonic of biblical interpretation here, we're getting a little bit outside of the. It is necessarily, this is a multidisciplinary subject, and so we can't have to control how much we go into any one topic. Well, uh, yeah, it's a question of authority. Yes, it's a question of authority. And, the inter- and uh, yes, the, the authoritative reading of Scripture. I agree with you that that's the issue. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, by the way, I was interested in your discussion of uh, Thomas' treatment of the four basic divisions of material being yes. and how within them the changes can be um, accidental to a certain degree without forming a different kind. Right. Um, so my question was, in the sort of leap from the plant to the animal. Yeah. Uh, does this well, you should also mention the, the, the non-living thing. Right, the same thing. Um, does this require a... Special creation. I am not committed to saying it does, but I would I would not be a, I would not be scandalized by the people who want to argue that it, it might. So, I mean, I think that those are real questions metaphysically. I, I think it may be, it may be hard to, for us to say from our vantage point you know, I, I talked to serious scientists who say, I was talking to a Harvard scientist, I was having coffee with a, it sounds like I'm bragging, I was having coffee, I was having a coffee with a Harvard scientist uh, four days ago, and I was asking her, because I was kind of preparing for this talk, about origins of living things, and she's very, she converted to Catholicism from atheism, and she's very convinced that they're going to be able to find ways through physics to, to talk about the, the dispositions of non-living things to produce single-cell bacteria. And that's part of the work she's engaged in. Um, I, I'm metaphysically puzzled by that question, and I wonder if it's if it's possible for living non-living things to emerge from from living things to emerge from non-living things. You know that Watts, uh, Francis Crick, I think it is Crick and Watson Crick fame. Crick famously thought that you know that uh, life was too complex to have emerged on Earth from non-living things, and posited that it was it was planted here by space aliens. Because he's an atheist and he didn't want to say God had a special creation of life. But it shows that even some scientists who are materialists think there's a problem about how you get your first living things. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I don't want to too prematurely say that the difference between plant and animal is just a difference of degree. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was wondering, going back to what you said about um, the six day creation not technically or not necessarily being a literal. Um, Six day. Yeah. So, um, what would what would your opinion be, therefore, on uh, the rest of the Bible being completely literal? Because I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, considering the six days not to be literal. But I think the whole Bible has to be taken literally. Right. There's always a literal sense. The question is, is the literal sense? I mean, Aquinas asks, what's the literal sense of the Song of Songs? He says it's
that denotes the love of God in Israel in poetic terms using the affections of men and women who are loved and who love each other. Right? So that, it's literally a love poem. Right? And uh, when you get into like Luke's account of the Annunciation, uh, is, it, is it a myth? Is it a symbolic in, uh, indication that Jesus is the Son of God or is it a literal uh, telling about a miracle? Well, I think it's a literal telling about a miracle. Now, if you're, if you're in the Reformed tradition, you basically have to figure out, based on the principles of Scriptura, each one yourself, what you think is, and when is it, what is the literal sense? Is the literal sense signifying a, a fact of history? Is it signifying a metaphysical principle? Is it, what mode of human writing is this? What kind of mode of, of, of the genre of writing? And the Catholics have to ask that question too, but Catholics work through the great tradition and saying that the church down through time, moved by the Holy Spirit, discerns not just individually but collectively. So, like, for example, do I think historically God became human? Yes. Do I think that there was an ancient Israel? Yes. Do I think that there was a mosaic religious movement in the, in the, out in the Sinai Peninsula 3,200 uh, years ago? Absolutely. And I believe there's a historical Abraham. And I believe there's a historical first origins of the human being. But the mode in which it's communicated in Genesis seems to me highly symbolic, which doesn't mean the reality... There's a difference between the mode of signifying and the reality signified. The reality signified, I think, is the first human couple or the first creation of the human race as spiritual animals. The mode of signifying is symbolic, slightly poetic. It's a, it's a very unique literary genre. So, I mean, Bible interpretation is pretty complicated when you get that way. And that's why I think we need the tradition of the fathers to help guide us. Yes, so this is kind of this question kind of pull back a little bit from like the past in history and kind of like more the future. So like sorry, I'm like pulling out something I don't know exactly where to work, but um you've heard of the Fermi paradox. It's actually like a physical concept that um talks about the existence of extraterrestrials and how it contradicts with what is, has happened in the past. So the idea is that like there are billion there's I think there's like two hundred to four hundred billion stars just in the Milky Way alone. And it says that there's... There's got to be intelligent life out there. Yeah, so there has to be intelligent life out there. I'm not as committed to that. I just thought... However... Yes. There is a high possibility. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so there's the there's a paradox that if there is so... If there's such a high possibility of, like, extraterrestrial intelligent life <coughs> not on Earth, why haven't they visited Earth yet? Just because... Every most solar systems are on different time fields due to like just light travel just being like they're far away. Yeah. They haven't figured it out. State they haven't built a spaceship yet either. Yeah. So but the the thing is that like Earth is well, human life on Earth is already considering the fact of interstellar travel. Mm-hmm. So there there's the hypothesis that if there is interstellar or extraterrestrial life on other planets, that they would have also been considering interstellar travel as well. They may already be here. I think I live with a few of them in my prior <laughs> <laughs> So, according to this line of thinking, like, why, and the fact that no, like, no extraterrestrials have, at least we have not seen them on Earth to this day, yeah. like, maybe, maybe we are alone in this universe. Like, how does that fit in with the line of religious thinking or doctrine? And if there were yeah. the possibility of extraterrestrial life, how does that conflict Okay, so you, I mean, I'm going to boil it down to two kind of different questions. One is, 
um, if we're so important, why are we so alone in the universe? Because there's no extraterrestrial life, and we're just it's just us here, and it seems pretty like we're like pretty on a, pretty small on a massive stage. And the other, which is, if there are extraterrestrials, which there ought to be, given how big the universe is, we're not so important, and maybe we all just evolved uh, kind of you know accidentally. Um, and to the first question, I would say, well, you know, the paradox of the human being is, is it's in Pascal who invented calculus and was a devout Roman Catholic could you know conceive of the infinite quite well and you have to read the Pensees where he talks about man as a thinking reed he says the strange thing about us is we're just like here for a moment in this on this vast stage this vast cosmos but we have an intellect capable of the universal that can think about the whole cosmos and can love with an openness to all that exists and Aristotle says similarly that the human mind can in a certain way become all things so the paradox of the human being is in some ways we're totally insignificant we're a speck of dust on a speck of dust, living just like the, ble- 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 the briefest flash of life. But on the other, li- other hand, we can think about the entire scenario and in some ways encompass it in ourselves and can love in the midst of death with in heroic, profound, dramatic, and meaningful ways. So I, I think that our, it's kind of the paradox of being an, an embodied soul or an embodied person. As for, I, I don't ever engage in speculations about extraterrestrials. I mean, given that we are pretty rare in the universe, maybe we are alone, maybe there are no others. But if there are, I, I leave all that authoritatively to the theology of C.S. Lewis and that chronology about, what's that one called? Where, what's the one called where they develop, they discover the aliens on Mars or something? And, out of the silent planet, and then they discover. So they discover the, the extraterrestrials and they, that are rational, and they think it's going to, you know, change hum, the human race. It turns out they're all religious already themselves, and they have the same ethical problems we do. Um, they just they're a different shape than us. And actually, I, you know, you should read a book by David Oderberg, which is a great book. Everybody should read that's interested in this question about what we've been talking about tonight. David Oderberg's Real Essentialism, where he says he actually argues it's defensible. It's it's disputed. That if we find space aliens that are rational, they're the exact same species as us. Based on exactly this Thomas criteria I was talking about earlier, that, of the grades of reality. They, they may look very different, we, not, we won't be able to, to, to um, reproduce with them, but they will be rational animals, so they'll be specifically human beings. They will be just very different looking human beings. Oderberg. Yeah, very important book, Real Essentialism. And he's got a lot there on Aquinas and evolution in that book. All right, thank you for your attention. You all have been a wonderful audience.